Well, anyway, I didn't really have anything prepared with the ball. I just, I love object lessons and things like that. And so, you know, it, it's something I think we can really break out of. And often in the Western model of education, someone sits there and talks, 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 right? And sometimes I do that. But I mean, like, without any, like, visuals, right? And I love visuals. So it's, it's fun to try and break out of that mindset, even if you're on a long trip and you're just about going bonkers, or you have children and they're just about driving you bonkers, like, like Tom and Laurie's hyper children here, for instance, maybe, or something like that. Um, yeah, just to like, let, play the game, like, let's start making up parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a license plate, or like a, uh, something you just drive past, right? And um, it's, it, the master did that. He was always like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he would use some everyday object, or he would tell a story, or, or whatever. So anyway, I was just thinking about that. Yeah, that's true. All the way from universes to planets to atomic structures, all in balls. Hey. Oh, it's a circle. Even it's um, stated that. Hey, wow, that's cool. Well, if you want to turn with me to the Torah portion, we'll, we'll begin there. That was our little, like, um, very spiritual meditation for this morning. Bouncy balls, yeah. Okay, so um, we're, we're just going to pick up from two themes from last week, and I'll, I'll kind of tie them up. Last week we were talking about how the books of Genesis and Exodus communicate a lot of truths that help us understand the book of Revelation. Um, the historical Exodus from Egypt is a template for the ultimate redemption. So we, one of the things we were talking about is what are the openly stated objectives of the exodus from Egypt? Why did it have to happen that way? Because it'll help us understand the future. There are going to be some very painful times that the body Messiah goes through. Um, some people's hearts are going to be broken. There's going to be some loss that's involved. Um, it's not going to be fun. Just like it wasn't fun for the people of Israel in exile in Egypt. And I think these will be important purposes to remember. How, have you ever had a time when you were suffering in your life or when you were in pain and you thought, you know, as long as I know there's a reason for this, if something good is going to come of this, I think I can make it. But if this is for no purpose, then I'm going to go crazy. Or like, I just like to end it all. Um, I, I've, I've gone through those, those thought processes. So, you know, when we're going through times of tribulation, it's good to stop and say, why is this happening? There's a reason for suffering. I mean, unless you just did something really dumb and you're experiencing the consequences for it, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the suffering of the righteous. So um, maybe we can help kind of psychologically prepare ourselves for the future in that regard. In um, Exodus chapter 10, verse 2, We'll, we'll continue looking at some of those openly stated objectives for the Exodus. Um, he says, 10 verses 1 and 2, So he says, I have hardened his heart and the heart of his courtiers, that I may perform these signs of mine among them. So there's the number one objective stated, that I may perform these signs among them. Uh, what's the Hebrew word for sign? Can anyone tell me? Oat, that's correct. An oat. So it's like a, it's something in the physical dimensions of space and time that represents a greater reality that isn't tangible to the naked eye or uh, through your senses. Um, we have lots of signs throughout scripture. It also can mean something that is supernatural. So this stuff was supernatural. Egypt was hit by the supernatural on a level that they had never experienced. And it was straight from the creator of the universe. And it was intended to bring them to repentance and uh, show them who the one true Elohim really was, and also show them um, his alliances. So that's the first thing. Uh, second, openly stated objective is in verse 2, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am Yahweh. So there are two more stated objectives there. The second one is so that you can tell your kids and your grandkids this story about me. For his name's sake, absolutely, and um, and so that and so that you may know that I am Yahweh. He says. So it's like the historical Exodus from Egypt. There were events that happened in connection with it that were his signature. 
It was like him stamping his identity ring on that event and saying, this is, this is me, this is who I am. And uh, as it was in the book of Exodus, so it will be in the book of Revelation, so it will be in the final redemption and in the events that, that come in connection with it. Also in Exodus chapter 11, verse 9, we read a very similar thought. Then Yahweh said to Moshe, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And uh, there, there's another word here. Like, okay, we just said that the word for sign is ot. The Hebrew word translated as wonder is uh, mofet. Everybody say mofet. M-O-F-E-T, mofet. Uh, plural is moftim. Everybody say moftim. Right on. Now, actually, a mofet has the connotation of an example. Um, sometimes even a pattern. So um, if you have like a, an example of how you should act or how you shouldn't act, that is a mofet in Hebrew. So this isn't just wonders in the sense of like something that wows the nation. This is something that serves as an example, not only for that generation, but for the generations to come. So what's the lesson here? The, the mofet, the lesson here is if you are in the political world, don't stand against the God of Israel when it's time when he calls his people home to Israel, or it will not go well for you and for the country or the group of countries that you are in charge of. Maybe we could infer that from it. So those are just a couple more openly stated objectives. Now, that one objective about telling the story, did that only apply to their immediate generation? And then did that mitzvah kind of have an expiration date attached to it where after that generation died out, there goes the story? No? Generation to generation, that's right. I, just, I think that's very cool. That there's, there's this level of the scriptures that is engineered to um, evoke a storytelling culture in um, the people of Israel. Like the peop- as, 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 a, as a people... And as families, we are storytelling families. That's what the Exodus was all about, hey? Because it gives you a story to tell. And that story communicates powerful things uh, about our Creator. I just wonder, as we let that filter into our worldview and how we think, what that'll look like. Um, developing that storytelling culture. Yeah. So um, another theme that we'll wrap up from last week is protection in times of crisis or, uh, or cataclysm. In... Um, there are several examples of that in here. For instance, we read in Exodus chapter 11, verse 7. It says, Against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Uh, that term there for a dog barking, it's a Hebrew idiom. It literally says a dog will not sharpen or point his tongue. So a dog won't even point his tongue at the people of Israel. Um, Genevieve and I were having a little whispery midrash about that while we were reading through this parsha. Um, what does that mean? What, what I understand it to mean is simply that like, there will be no aggression shown towards the people of Israel. They will, un- they will, they will undertake absolutely no uh, assault of any kind, even a dog barking, um, when the rest of the nation is in the throes of judgment. Um, perhaps we could infer that. And there's a reason, so that you may understand how he makes a distinction. So if that's what he did in the Exodus from Egypt, what are the chances that in times of future judgment, he will make that distinction again? Could it be that that is why he calls his people out of, quote, Babylon, out of the, the world system that is under the control of the evil one? Um, does that mean we, like, throw away our passports and um, cancel our bank accounts? I don't know if that's what it means, but maybe what it means is, like, come out as much as you can. Perhaps it's an attitude and a mindset more than anything. Um, I think the, the, big, the big thing here is just that he said to do it, and we can go to him and say, what does that look like in my life? So that when stuff hits Egypt, a spiritual place for sure. I, I absolutely, Charlotte, I definitely think maybe that's even the heart of it, re- leaving lawlessness and returning to God's law, to his Torah. Yeah. Because uh, what is the heart of, of Bavel, of Babylon? The heart of it is spiritual anarchy, lawlessness, rebellion against the Creator, eh? So when you embrace His law, when you accept His Torah, you are removing yourself from the very foundation that Babylon is built upon. Absolutely. Right. Right. Who you serve. Absolutely. 
Um, here, here's another passage along those lines in Exodus chapter 2, 10 verse 26. He says, um, Moses is talking. He says, Therefore I, our livestock too shall go with us. Not a hoof or hoof. A hoof hoof shall be left behind. For we shall take some of them to serve Yahweh our God. So um, what we learn there is his protection doesn't just apply to our... Uh, our personages and our physical conditions, his protection here applies also to our livestock, um, maybe to our property and possessions in general at times. There's another scripture, and I left it out here, but for, oh yes, okay, here it is. Um, Exodus chapter 10, verse 23. Here's another example. It says, um, they didn't see one another. This is the darkness, the three days of really thick darkness. They didn't see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. So in the midst of this, like, nationwide blackout, not just a power outage, but an absolute blackout, like no sunlight or anything, so, so dark, it's like you were in the deepest cave and you couldn't even see your head in front of your face. There was light in the homes of the people of Israel. Where did that light come from? I wonder if it wasn't like the Creator just opening the eyes of that whole country full of people for just a second to see into the spiritual realm. Because these people, they were in pitch black darkness as they were serving the dark side, as they were under His control. Uh, they were plunged into spiritual gloom. But the people of Israel were serving the Creator of the universe who is light Himself. So maybe for a second He just kind of like phased those physical dimensions into the higher spiritual dimension and they realized what was really going on. I, I just wonder, like, what if we were to like, have our spiritual eyes totally open? Um, for instance, you remember the prophet Elisha? When he was in this city and the Arameans sent an army to take him out and his servant woke up in the morning and he was freaking out. He's like, Elijah, they have the whole city surrounded and we're going to die, right? And um, he, was like, he just prayed that the servant's eyes would be opened. And his eyes were opened and he saw reality as it was. And there were, these, there were these massive heavenly armies assembled and chariots. I don't know what that would look like today, like spiritual tanks or something. Or like you can imagine a squadron of upper level helicopters or I don't know but like that's what he saw that was, that was reality that was the spiritual dimension and I think maybe it was a similar case here except it was the whole country that had their eyes open for a second so what would that look like today if we just had our eyes totally open for one hour and we just drove around Prince Albert what would you see if you just had radar vision as you drove past houses if you, if you drove past not only like secular people but, but Christians and other religions if you just drove past their houses what would you see in that house what would you see in a, a person's heart would there be darkness? Would there be light? And, and that's what happened, essentially. Except it was tangible. And it was like, I just, I'm encouraged by that. There's, there's darkness in the world system, but when we choose Yeshua, the light of the world, it's like those candles. You know, we light on Erev Shabbat every Friday evening. It's just you light the candles and the room lights up. And you realize that you have light in your dwelling. So, that's a pretty cool, um, like, weapon too. Can you imagine if, if a country got a hold of that technology whereby you could just blanket a whole area with pitch blackness for days on end? I mean, you could paralyze any army in the world with that. I don't know. It, it sounds like not even their, their, uh, their light sources, like their fires or candles or torches were effective. Well, anyway, it just, the, spiritual, the spiritual world is fascinating. It just seems like it was coming really close in this instance. So, Let's look at some of the, the, um, the main theme I want to look at here is families and the role that families play in the Torah in general and uh, in the Exodus passage here. And maybe we can look at Exodus chapter 10 verse 9 first. So um, here's, here's Pharaoh and Moshe, they're negotiating. So Pharaoh asks, so who's going anyway? And Moshe says, we shall go with our young, the word there is for youth, and our old, with their sons and our daughters, with their flocks and our herds, we shall go, for we must hold a feast, a, a festival to Yahweh. 
But Pharaoh's response, Thus may Yahweh be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. So what do we learn from this? We learn that redemption is not just for us as individuals. Redemption is for us as families, complete family units. Redemption is for us as a nation. And the enemy will do everything he can to keep us from going with our little ones and our youth. But that is, that is Elohim's plan. And ultimately his plan will prevail if we're standing with him. So remember that in prayer. Like Moshe was adamant from the beginning. He said, we are all going and we are not leaving our youth behind. We are not leaving our children behind. Our sons and our daughters are going with us. That, that's, that's the power of his redemption. And that's something that we can, you know, many of us have children and grandchildren that we're praying for. That's something that we can pray for regularly. Be adamant in prayer. Say, we are not leaving our children behind. We are not leaving our youth behind. It doesn't matter what your youth think. Because we have a God who can move people. That He can change their minds in an instant. And you know what? Sometimes when we're in our adolescence, like, the way we think is a little bonkers. I remember, my thinking was a little bonkers sometimes, right? And you know what? Like, the Father can give wisdom. And so, um, pray adamantly. Stand in faith. Yeah, that's the first thing we can, we can learn from, um, from this passage. And then, and, then, and then he finishes by saying, For we must hold a festival to Yahweh. That word there is a hog. It's like a real celebration. It's like when you're dancing in circles and whirling in joy. That's the idea there. So I, I love that. That the, 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 um, the appointed times, the, the festivals of God, the feasts as they're often called in older English, these are for the family. These are for everybody from the babies through the youth up to the adults and older people. And uh, th- that's a real challenge that we've been facing in Saskatoon for several years. Like, um, you know, Tom, Tom and I in, in our leadership team in Saskatoon, we, we've been saying, what does that look like? When we gather as a community, what, was, what does it look like to have something that includes everyone, that engages children also, that builds children up in their faith? You know, um, often in the world system, there's this agenda to separate families. You know, you send your, send your young people off to this room and you send the older people off to this room and that segregate everybody based on their gender and on their age. And, uh, of course, that happens in the world, too, with the educational system. I, I think that can be unhealthy if that's all we do. Maybe there's a place for, like, men gathering and praying as a man, uh, etc. Um, maybe there's a place for just having a real kick with the kids, you know, having a lot of fun. I mean, they can run a little faster than we can, so maybe it's good sometimes to let them do their own thing, right? But that, that's not, so that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just saying, like, what does that look like when we prioritize family in our congregational gatherings? Because it seems like Pharaoh didn't like that idea. He didn't want all of, he didn't want families to go free uh, as families. So again, that's something we can be um, praying about, we can be thinking about regularly. Um, I, I believe that's an area where the Father is calling us to pioneer as a movement. Um, I come from a homeschooled background, of course. Um, that's another area where that, that is being pioneered, that is being restored. What does it look like for parents to take responsibility of their homes, of being the, the key players in their child's lives, of being the main teachers? Um, that, that's an ancient concept in Judaism. In Judaism, um, the, uh, uh, a son doesn't just call his father his father. He calls him, my father, my teacher. Doesn't that say a lot? And uh, that, that's something that I want to take seriously from the very beginning of our family life. You know, like I mentioned even, I, I read the Parsha and I love to have tears of sin on my lap. She can't, she can't sit through the whole thing because it's like five or six chapters in Hebrew, right? And she begins to squirm like crazy. But um, just having her there for a couple minutes and, and sharing with her a couple Hebrew words and um, letting her feel a closeness that she's a part of the Torah life of our family. You know? Yeah. It's, it's that little bit by little bit. And so, I mean, th- this is a new journey for Genevieve and me. Um, many of you have had children and grandchildren and at least one of us. Do you, you have great-grandchildren, you said, right? Yeah, so I, I, hardly, I hardly feel adequate to be sitting here talking about this at all, right? I'm very new on this journey, but um, I'm on the journey, so I'm just sharing with you my thoughts at this point. I can hardly speak authoritatively, but I can share with you my thoughts, and I can share with you my hopes for that journey. I, I, think, I think that's true, often. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, often if you grow up in the uh, public educational model, you are trained to relate to your peers and only see your peers, those people in your age group, as real friends. Um, that, that's common. I'm not saying that always happens, right? 
but it can happen. Um, often when you grow up in a homeschooled model like I did, you see everyone as your friends. You don't view the world through a peer paradigm as much. And Genevieve and I have talked about that numerous times, like some of you are definitely not my peers in terms of our age, but I don't think in those terms. Like I see you all as close friends. I see you as people. And um, in that regard, you're, you're as much my, my, my buddies as someone in their uh, late 20s like I am is, eh? So that, that, that's an example from my life about how I, I think the Father is bringing his light to bear on this and he's calling us to a new paradigm, uh, a more scripture-based paradigm. So, yeah. Now you know, now you know how, I look, how I see you. <laughs> We're all buddies here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I want to read you a little story. And we'll talk about Pesach, about Passover for a couple minutes. I think I'm just going to do a teaching on Passover before our Seder um, so that we all know what it's about, why we're doing it, etc. But I'm going to give you like a little synthesized overview of Pesach here and I wanted to tell you a story first along those lines. Um, this is a very creative connection between the story and Passover, so I hope you appreciate it. A city slicker moves to the country and decides he's going to take up farming. He heads to the local co-op and tells the man, give me a hundred baby chickens. The co-op man complies. A week later, the man returns and says, Give me 200 baby chickens. The co-op man complies. Again, a week later, the man returns again. This time he says, Give me 500 baby chickens. Wow, the co-op man replies. You must be doing really well. Nah, said the man with a sigh. I'm either planting them too deep or too far apart. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? Anyway, so all, all that to say, um, there, there's, 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 it's smart to actually read the directions sometimes, to look at the details. Um, they say the devil's in the details, but I think sometimes God is in the details. So maybe I'll just give you a couple of the details of Pesach. How's that for a creative connection? <laughs> I just, I like that story. I wanted to share it with you. So that was my creative way of splicing it into our, into our talk here. Okay, uh, let's look at the who, the what, the when, and the why of Passover which is what in Hebrew? Pesach. And unleavened bread, which is what in Hebrew? Matzot. Matzah is the singular, matzot is the plural. So um, Pesach is Passover. Chag HaMatzot is the festival of unleavened bread. So I'm going to be using the terms Pesach and Matzot here to help our minds get in that groove, okay? Groove, okay? Um, who is Pesach for? In Exodus 12:14, we learn that it is a festival to Yahweh. So ultimately, this is something that we do for Him. This is something that is directed to Him. The focus, ultimately, in this, in this festival is Him on a personal level and also His actions. Um, who celebrates Pesach in um, Exodus chapter 12, verses 42 to 49? It says that it is for Israel. It is for both the Ezrach and the Ger. Uh, what is an Ezrach? Yes, that's correct. An Ezrach is a native-born. It's the Hebrew word for like a natural-born citizen of Israel today. Uh, so an Ezrach is someone who is born Jewish, who grew up in, in, in Judaism today. It, we would look at it in those ways. Um, someone who is ethnically from the people of Israel. Then we have the Ger. Who is the Ger? The stranger, the sojourner? Ani. Ani. <laughs> Ani means me. <laughs> Um, a, a ger in the second temple era came to be understood as a proselyte to Judaism. So in the Jewish world, someone who converts to Judaism is a ger. Um, that wasn't necessarily the case it, when the Torah was given here. So it means someone who chooses to be a part of the people of Israel, some who, someone who moves from a Gentile country to Israel and becomes part of the faith. So in that regard, um, we, have, we probably have a lot of gers in this room. Yeah, gerim in the plural. So what it says is that Passover is both for the Ezrach and for the Ger. So it's not just for ethnic Jews, it's for those who choose, who make that choice. To um, say like Ruth, not only will your Elohim be my Elohim, your people shall be my people. 
That's a package deal there. You'll notice that Ruth didn't just say, well, you know what, I'll take your God, but you are a bunch of messed up people. So for, you know, forget about that. You have, some, you have some, some customs I really don't like, and I, I, you know, your traditions are disagreeable to me, so I'll take the God and I'll leave the rest. You know? R- Ruth, uh, Ruth understood that it was a package deal. So you know, for the Ger, it's someone who comes alongside the people of Israel. Today, um, that involves coming alongside the Jewish people, realizing that whether we're Jewish or not, we are part of that greater whole, and um, maybe that's what it looks like today. You've got to be geared to the Torah, right? Engage with the Torah, engage with Israel. <laughs> I like it. Wow, you just discovered a secret that's been hidden for thousands of years, Mike. <laughs> that's wonderful. So that, that's who it's for. Um, what is it? In Exodus 12:14, we learn that it is a memorial, so it commemorates the historical exodus from Egypt. It's a time to tell the story, to remember our collective past, because it's also our collective future. Uh, what do we do? In Exodus 12:15, it says uh, we have we eat matzot. That's basically what we do. You eat unleavened bread. It, it, it's quite glorious sounding, isn't it? It's a very spiritual experience. You eat this crumbly unleavened bread for a week. Yeah. Well, maybe it is more spiritual than what we think. Maybe it's not just the physical act. Maybe there's, some, maybe there's some meanings that accompany that, hey? Maybe when you make a point of cleaning the leaven out of your houses and eating matzah for a week, maybe, uh, maybe Yeshua has some lessons to teach us there. But on, on a basic level, it's like, eat matzah for a solid week. Um, on the first and the last days of that seven-day period, it says to have uh, mikra e kodesh, have holy convocations, have special gatherings. Um, we learned about how the verbal root for, for a mikra, for a convocation or gathering, is to invite people to it, to publicly read the scripture, to pray and call on the name of Yahweh, to preach. Uh, all, of those, all of those activities are wrapped up in that term kara in Hebrew. I'm not going to go into detail with that. Uh, specifically, it says those days are to be Shabbats, the first and the last days of the week of unleavened bread are Shabbat. So just like you take Shabbat off on Saturday, if at all possible, um, you also want to plan ahead, you want to look ahead, look at your schedule, see if you can get those days off work. Why? Because we have a Messiah who uh, is setting a rendezvous point with us. He wants to take us out on a, on a solid 24-hour date uh, when we can, we can look at him, when we can remember our past and uh, also um, spend that quality time with him. It's kind of one of those basic things, you know, it's hard to be in two places at one time, so if you're at work, it's hard to be at a, a holy convocation. Um, an interesting little side, side point here on Exodus 12.16 is it says that when it comes to the festival Sabbath, you can do the food prep necessary for eating that day. That was very nice of the Creator, because if you have a festival Sabbath that falls on a Friday or a Sunday, so it's back-to-back with a weekly Shabbat, it's sometimes challenging to have food ready for two days, especially if you have a bunch of small children or something. So um, that's an exception that he makes between the weekly Shabbat and the festival Shabbat. On a weekly Shabbat, if at all possible, you want to have all your food ready to go so you don't have to do any cooking, stuff like that. Um, minimize the food preparation on Shabbat. That's the weekly Shabbat. Uh, festival Sabbath, he says, you know, you can do the food prep that you need to do for that day. So that's, a, that's a, an allowance made just on a very practical, halachic level. That's how I understand it. Um, here, here, here's, a, here's a perspective on this whole thing about like just shutting down on Shabbat, blocking as much of the mundane activities out of your life as possible. Maybe it's like the difference between Mary and Martha. It's so easy to be a Martha, right? I mean, in the flesh, we all tend to be Marthas. We just want to run around and do stuff. And sometimes we forget that Yeshua is in the room and that this is about like sitting at his feet and spending time with him and engaging with him, you know? Um, especially if you have a personality type like me, then you're really prone to being a Martha, right? But the whole point of Shabbat is like cultivating that, that um, okay, the Hebrew, Mary's name in Hebrew is Miriam, right? So we're going to call her Miriam here, you know, the sister of Martha. The whole point of Shabbat is cultivating the, the Miriam attitude, um, fostering that, that spirit where you just sit down at the master's feet, just plant yourself at his feet for hours even, no distractions, no serving or anything, and just, just listen to him. Yeah, 
So that maybe, you know, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks over Oneg about Shabbat and why do we do Shabbat and what does that look like on a practical level. Maybe that's the spirit of the law. The point behind it is to become more like Miriam and less like Martha, right? So that should apply to our uh, festival Shabbats also. It also says in Exodus chapter 12, verses 25 and 20, 26, that it is an avodah. Everybody say avodah. It's translated as a rite, R-I-T-E, in the NASB. It has the connotation, that root word has the connotation of a service or an expression of worship. Okay, so the Seder and the week of unleavened bread, it's a service to the Holy One. It is an expression of worship that He has called His people to. Um, it also has the connotation of a rite. I, I like rites personally. Um, we've really lost touch with the value of rites in our culture. You know, rites of passage, um, the whole concept of a ceremony in a culture is often forgotten about in the Western world. Um, we settle for some very cheap and weird forms of ceremony sometimes in the Western world, sometimes even in the church world. But you know what? Like, the Father has ceremony in His Word, and it is valuable. And that's not just in the that's not just in the uh, foundational covenants. It's just not just in the, quote, Old Testament. Sometimes people will say, pish posh, that ceremonial law, all done away with. And I think, man, like, there's a lot of ceremonial law in the New Testament too. Uh, anointing with oil, laying on of hands, immersion in water. These are all, these are all traditions that are, firstly, they're Jewish traditions. Uh, secondly, they have their roots in the Tanakh. So we can't just throw away ceremony. There is that aspect of Passover. I think sometimes the First Nations have a much better understanding of ceremony and the value of ceremony and uh, how that works in families and society than uh, we have in the Western world and also sometimes in the Christian world. Yeah. It, it also says in Exodus 12.42 that um, the Passover Seder specifically is a leil shimurim. A leil is a lila. It's a night. And uh, shimurim is uh, an intensive word in the plural. Like, so when you take a word and you intensify it in Hebrew, it's like saying that you're doing this to the nth degree. And then when you put it in the plural, it's also saying that you're doing it to the nth degree. Like El is the short form of God, right? Uh, he is, it's someone who's powerful. Elohim in the plural is someone who is omnipotent, who is all-powerful, right? So here it says that the Passover Seder is to be a night of Shimurim. Now the root Shemar means to keep, it means to guard, it means to protect. Uh, so it has the concept of a night of vigilance, a night when you stand on guard, a night when, that you protect with uh, all of your energy. It's kind of the idea. It's something you keep. And unfortunately, in the body of Messiah, in the first couple centuries of the Asura movement, we really lost touch with this. We kind of left Passover by the wayside and settled for some non-biblical customs like Easter. Um, you can read about that. Check out on Wikipedia the Quarto Deciman Controversy. It's the story of how the early church forsook Passover and uh, adopted Easter. Quarto Deciman. Quarto Deciman means a 14er. There was this group, they were the traditionalists. Uh, they were centered in Ephesus in that area because John was centered in Ephesus and his main protege, uh, Polycarp. And uh, when most of the Christian world began going for Easter and forsaking Passover, these, this was a bastion of traditionalism where they said, you know what, our Savior did Passover on the 14th of the first month. The apostles all did it, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to stick with the original, with the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. They were called 14ers. In, uh, in Greek, they were called the Cordodeciman. So, I'm a Cordodeciman. I am part of that movement. And uh, check it out if you want on the internet, on Wikipedia. You can learn about it. Oh, quarto decimate. Q U A R, correct me if I'm wrong, quart, R T, like a unit of measurement, a quart. Yes. O. Yes. And then decimate. D E C I M A N. Quarto decimate. Okay. We already, the, the when of this thing, we already touched on it. Um, he says several times in Exodus chapter 12, verses 15, 16, 18 and 19 have the Seder, the Passover meal, on the 14th day in the evening, and then have matzot, eat unleavened bread from the 15th day to the 21st day. So, nice and basic for us there. There's the time frame. Um, he also specifies how long we're to do this for. Um, he says it's only for that dispensation. Right? So this is a very temporary thing. It's until um, Yeshua comes and does away with all that stuff. 
That's what God says, right here in the book of Exodus. Does anyone want to challenge me on that? Okay, let me give you what it really says, okay? That's the pop theology. That is the common understanding. People don't do Passover for that reason. But I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you some passages from the book of Exodus, and I'm just going to challenge you to believe these passages. If, the, if we as the body of Messiah return to believing the whole Bible, what is that going to look like? And I'm not being critical here, right? I'm just saying, I think the Holy Spirit is saying, read these verses and believe these verses. Maybe that's, what, maybe that's part of the Elijah call today. Because this specifies who our God is. He is the God of Passover. He is the God who brought his people out from Egypt. So, um, in Exodus 12, 14, he says, this is something that is to be practiced throughout your generations. So as long as the people of Israel are around, this is to be done. So when we don't do Passover, it's almost like we're saying, I would rather that the people of Israel didn't exist anymore. I would rather that their generations be terminated. Now, no one really thinks that, right? But really, like, the act of abstaining from Passover on a, um, on a symbolic level is saying, I don't want to be a part of that, and I don't want that to continue. Uh, it sometimes can take the form of latent anti-Semitism. Not something that you intend to do, but something that happens on, um, on an unconscious level. So, um, he goes on to also say that it is a chukat uh, olam. I'll transliterate that for you. C-H-U-K-A-T chukat olam. O-L-A-M. We've covered that word olam before. What does it mean? Eternal. Forever. That's right. Uh, a chukat is like a, a law of or a custom of. So it's saying that it is an eternal law. It is a custom forever for the people of Israel. And we already established who the people of Israel are. It's not just ethnic Jews today. I think we, we covered that. So um, do we believe that? Do we believe that the celebration of Passover and unleavened bread, cleaning the leaven out of our houses for a solid week, just eating unleavened bread, do we believe that that is a law for the people of God today and forever? That's what the Bible says. We're just preaching the Bible here, right? Um, let, let's look at another couple of verses. Okay, I want to touch on something. Sometimes people will say, well, that term olam, it actually means temporary. I'll give you two other usages contextually where it's used that will help dispel that myth. Um, the Holy One in... I don't have it written down here. He is called uh, the Eternal God in the book of Genesis. You remember that? The Eternal God, the Everlasting God. That term is El Olam. Okay? Does that mean he's the temporary God or he's the God for specific dispensation? No, it means he's eternal. So Olam, has to, it means the same thing as him in terms of his, the tenure of his existence, which is non-quantifiable, it's forever. Um, also, what's the Hebrew word for eternal life? Chaye Olam, we, we bless them who has planted Chaye Olam, uh, eternal life within us, right? So um, I'm just giving this to you to help, help you understand this word so that you can answer when people say, well, that term doesn't really mean forever. It, it means it's forever as God is forever and eternal life is forever. And I'm really hoping that, th that, that that's eternal. Yeah. So that's how eternal Passover is, the celebration of Passover. Um, we're just reading the verses here, right? Exodus chapter 12, verse 17. He also says, this is le dorotechem. This is for your generations. It's a hok olam. It is an eternal law. So he repeats the exact same terms. Uh, I assume the Holy One doesn't have a stutter. Maybe he's really um, emphasizing this point. Um, in Exodus 12, 24, he also says it is forever, le olam. Exodus chapter 13, verse 10, he says it is ad olam, until forever. And... Um, Sorry, that was in 1224. In 1310, he says it's liyamim yamima, which means today's and day's word. It's like a poetic expression that means this is something that keeps going and doesn't stop. Yeah, year after year, from year to year, is I think how it's, it's uh, translated in one place. So are we beginning to get the sense that this wasn't something that was temporary or that was only going to be in effect until Yeshua comes? You read Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, it's the most detailed description we have of the kingdom of heaven after Yeshua comes back on planet earth when he rules from the city of Jerusalem and sits on the throne of David. talks about Israel doing Passover in that passage. I encourage you, read Ezekiel 40 to 48. It will rock your world. It will turn your paradigm upside down um, depending on what your paradigm is, where your paradigm is currently at.
And then let's look at the why for a second here. Uh, Exodus 12.26, it's because you're, it's going to raise some ch- questions in your children's mind. The Seder is designed to raise questions in children's mind. We can design how we do our Seders to be child-friendly and to be engaging in that regard. Um, it should raise questions like, what does all this stuff mean? Why are we doing this? Uh, likewise in Exodus 13.8 and 13.14, it talks about bincha. It talks about your son, it talks about your daughter, and how uh, they're going to be asking questions. And this is going to create an opportunity for you to explain why you do this stuff as a family. Uh, it'll, it'll be one of those opportunities to drop in something about our national God. And uh, that's very valuable. Maybe that, maybe that uh, principle applies to all the festivals, to Shabbats, to everything. Um, maybe that's something we continue can continue to brainstorm about. How can we do things in such a manner that it will make people stop and think and ask questions? Maybe that doesn't just apply to children too, hey? Yeah. Um, in Exodus twelve seventeen, it says to shamar, the celebration of Passover. Uh, I already explained how that's a really charged word. It doesn't just mean to keep. Keep is a relatively weak word in English. It means like to, uh, if you were involved in, in uh, if you had a career as a bodyguard, or if you were involved in glorified bodyguarding, like executive protection, your job would be to protect the principal, that is to say the executive under your care. Your job would be to like take a bullet for the person you're bodyguarding. You get the idea, right? This is the idea here. So it says... Um, to guard Passover in that capacity. Why? Well, why would you be a bodyguard in general? Because the person that you're guarding may come under assault. The principal may be attacked. Someone may try and take him out. So you are placed there to place yourself between the assailant and the, uh, the person you're protecting and to incapacitate the assailant. Or at the very least, to protect the uh, person who's being attacked, right? This is, our, this is our relationship with Passover and with the celebration of unleavened bread. He's saying, this will come under fire, this will be attacked, stand up for this thing. Stop the assailant. So even the, the, the passages that we're looking at here, this is truth from the word of God. This is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So when people judge you for celebrating Passover or any of the biblical festivals, when they try and shut you down, just... You don't even have to give your own opinions. You don't have to say, well, I think this. That's not how I see it. Just say, what does the Bible say? Let's go read Exodus chapter 12 together and Exodus chapter 13 together. It says here that Israel is to celebrate Passover forever. And it's not just for ethnic Jews. It's for those who come and are grafted in, shall we say. I'm using some terms that are meaningful to people today, right? Just, just go read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you, you read the history of the, the Quartodeciman controversy that I'd mentioned. In the second century, the celebration of Passover came under horrific attack in the early church, and the early church, the majority of the early church did not survive that. Most of the early church dropped Passover. If you could picture that as like someone who's a bodyguard, the person being protected was, was assassinated and we took off and ran. And uh, Messiah's calling us back. He gives, a, and here's another why thing. He says when we don't do Pesach in Exodus chapter 12, verses 15 and 19, we end up being cut off from Israel. And uh, you could understand that in a couple of levels, but on a very practical level, like when you don't do Passover, you do disconnect from the Jewish people. You lose touch with your Jewish roots uh, of the faith. And again, that is the story of church history in the first couple of centuries. Um, giving up on Passover, uh, writing that off for whatever reasons, and becoming very disconnected from our heritage in the covenants that are the foundation of the, of the nation of Israel. But hey, Messiah is restoring his people, right? So that's, that, those are the first couple of centuries, but there's a movement today. There has been um, for the last century and more uh, of, of coming back, coming home. Here's something else. In Exodus chapter 13, verses 9 and 16, he says, this is to be a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes. That Hebrew word for sign can also be a mark. So um, receiving a mark on your hand, let's say your right hand, or on your forehead, uh, what does that conjure up when I use those terms? The book of, book of Revelation, the quote, mark of the beast. Um, yeah, it's, the, the mark of the beast is just a satanic counterfeit of what Passover is all about. 
Passover, the celebration of Passover and unleavened bread, according to the Bible in Exodus 13, is the original mark on the hand and, and mark on the forehead that says who you belong to and who you serve. It's an identification mark. It is, it is stating very clearly with whom your allegiances lie. And whatever the mark of the beast is going to be, it's going to be the antithesis of Passover. It's going to be something that causes people to ignore the historical exodus from Egypt and its ramifications. It, uh, in my opinion, it'll be something that is against the law of God, his Torah, altogether. And sometimes that can, that can take many forms. It can disguise itself in multiple theologies that can sound very good. Uh, sugar-coated uh, theologies that can come to you maybe in the guise of freedom, but in the end can bring great, great, bring great bondage. Because, um, like it says in the, the movie The Ten Commandments, the classic movie on the Ten Commandments, where is real freedom to be found? It's based on law. Real freedom is only found in God's law. Not legalism, not human legalism. That's yucky stuff. We don't want to have anything to do with that. But the law of God is the real thing. Yeah. Um, let's just touch on a couple more things here. here. Here's something that I've been working through on my male journey in terms of discovering biblical masculinity, what that looks like. So, uh, sorry ladies, if you can't relate to this as much, but maybe, maybe you can in some ways also. I'll share something with you. I, I, can see, I can see Pharaoh in me. I can see myself in Pharaoh. Um, you know how Pharaoh was like the bouncy ball, up and down, like vacillating back and forth, um, kind of flip-flopping, uh, stuff like that. You'll, you'll notice that um, Pharaoh kind of has these two sides. He, he kind of gives up and is like, okay, go for it, do what you want. You, know? you could say that's kind of like the passive side. And then from there, he also has this ultra-aggressive side. Like in Exodus 11.1, 1, it says that he's not just going to let you go. He's going to drive you out of Egypt. Uh, the Hebrew says, garesh, ye garesh. It's like the emphasized form. Driving, he will drive you out. So he goes from just kind of being passive and like, no, you're not going anywhere and whatever, to being like, like aggressively driving the people of Israel out of Egypt. And um, like, I, I think that can often be a, ch- a challenge for the male psyche in general. I know it can for me. On the one side, it's so easy to just check out, to become passive, to disengage. And I have wrestled with that. That's something that the Father has consistently confronted me on. And um, trust me, I've come a long ways in the last couple of years. There's this other side, though, where you can become controlling, like a control freak, domineering, overly aggressive. Can you see these two sides in Pharaoh? He'd flip-flop. And uh, that is me. That is the male psyche. Um, what's, maybe that's us in the flesh. Like, uh, apart from the Spirit of God and just like living with Yeshua where he really changes us. I think that's just the way we are. And I think Yeshua, I really admire Yeshua as a model of biblical masculinity of like healthy manhood. Um, he was a man who could be very firm. He could be assertive and he could call the shots. He could be in your face at times. I mean, really, like he made a whip and he went through the temple in an act of premeditated aggression. Like, like ouch. That, that, that's our savior. But there's also the side to him where he was like, he was really tender with people. He was so caring. You know, he, he really heard, heard people's hearts and stuff. So I think that's the challenge. That's something that I feel challenged to grow in, that I think every one of us, and maybe this applies to, to you ladies also, right? I've never been a lady, so I, I, can't, I don't know if I can relate as much, but like, I, I know for us males, maybe that's, maybe that's the goal, to, like, to grow in balance, in like a gentle strength, in, in loving firmness, in, uh, in sensitive leadership. Maybe that's the balance, eh? So that, 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 that's something from my own personal journey that I'm growing in. That's something that I noticed about myself. Me and Pharaoh, we have a little something in common there. Um, but Yeshua is crucifying that, that old Pharaoh dude in me, right? And um, he's the one who's, who's being raised up in me. Yeah. Pomegranates. Right, pomegranates. <laughs> that's like your, your like major theme, Charlotte. You're cool. Okay, okay I'll, I'll point two things out here on a practical level in the parsha. And then we'll look for about five minutes at the First Corinthians thing. In Exodus 12, chapter 12, verse 2, he gives the first commandment after the people of Israel come out of Egypt. The first mitzvah, he says, is this month is going to be the first of the months for you. So he, they go from being on Egypt's timetable, on Pharaoh's schedule, to being on the Creator's timetable, to being on his schedule. He's like, okay, so you're out of that system. 
You're going to learn to walk with me now. Learn to move with me. First thing we're going to learn about is my calendar. Could it be that the biblical calendar is for a people who are redeemed from Egypt, who are set free from the world system, and who are following the God of Israel into the wilderness? What does that look like today for the body of Christ? You know what? When we just begin to connect with the feasts, we are taking that step. So, celebrating the feasts, keeping track of where we are on the biblical calendar, spotting the new moon, receiving those reports from Jerusalem about when the new moon is seen, that is for a people who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and who are free and who are following Messiah into the wilderness. Yeah, that's us. Um, the first place they stop is Sukkot. There's some prophetic significations there we're not going to get into. Maybe we'll do that in Sukkot, if you can wait that long. And then finally, it says that it wasn't just the ethnic people of Israel who came out of Egypt. In 1228, it says there was also an Arab Rav with them, a mixed multitude. Um, these are people from the nations. These are Egyptians who realized that they had been worshipping a sham all their life. They had been serving a big force. And they decided it was time to walk out and follow the one true one true Elohim. And uh, they left with the people of Israel. By the time of the first census in, uh, in, in Exodus Numbers, where we read about the census, these guys were nowhere to be seen. That means they either all took off and or died along the way, or they had by that time assimilated into the people of Israel. What do you think is the more probable scenario? Assimilation. They assimilated. So here's the question. Did the Gentile element of that move out of Egypt, i.e. the world system, did it expect the people of Israel to assimilate into it, or did they assimilate into Israel? So what does that look like in terms of church history and our orientation as the body of Christ? Uh, unfortunately, starting in the 200s, that Erev Rav, the mixed multitude that came into the kingdom from the nations, expected the Jewish people to assimilate into it, to become like them. I would use the term Gentilizers. Did you notice the Judaizers always got a bad rap? They're always the bad guys, right? Judaizers are people who convince people to do Jewish stuff or who decide to uh, ally themselves with the Jewish people. Um, that's the pop definition. That's not the scriptural definition. Um, what about the Gentilizers, though? What about the guys that try and force Jewish people to stop being Jews when they come to faith in Yeshua and tell them, well, you know, you're not really a believer until you have this piece of pork, so, you know, come to grips with it, man. Um, you know, you're not really free until you kick that law habit of yours or whatever. I mean, like, really, this is the story of church history. This is the attitude of a lot of people today in the body of Christ. It has to stop. Yeah. So let's just remember that. If you come from the nations, you assimilate into Israel, not vice versa. It may involve some change. Um, okay, let's look at 1 Corinthians for about five minutes here. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Let us celebrate the feast. It's actually kind of a cool connection. He's talking about unleavened bread here. And people would sometimes say, well, he was just talking about this allegorically. He didn't mean literally, let's celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. How yeah. However, when you read the end of his letter, it gives a time frame. Paul was writing that from Ephesus, and he says that he was going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, which is Shavuot. Um, that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8. So actually, the time frame for that letter was around Passover. Uh, this is a very solid piece of evidence saying that the early church did celebrate Passover un and unleavened bread. This was just something that the early Christians did. And not just the Jewish ones. Yeah. So take, that, take note of that. And then he also references the deeper meaning there, right? What does the leaven in your life look like when you clean that out? When you clean it out of your, your, uh, your house in terms of your community um, of disciples? In, uh, we've been talking about the term Gentiles in Paul's letters. We noted two places at least in the book of Romans where he addresses people from a non-Jewish background as Gentiles. And he wasn't saying it in a negative way or as in, an insult, right? Uh, this is against some people's paradigm. They say, once you come to faith, you're not a Gentile. Gentile is a dirty word. It's an oxymoron to say you're a Gentile believer. However, there is... So we see that. However, Paul also uses this term in a different way. And you need to look at the context. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, he does refer to Gentiles as um, those outside the community of faith. The, the pagans slash heathens slash non-believers. He talks about there's a kind of immorality among you as doesn't even exist among the Gentiles. So you'll note here that he uses the term Gentiles in a couple different ways. It's really important to note that. Um, in 
1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 18. He says, Circumcision is nothing, in verse 19, and uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Now often people will quote this verse, but they'll only quote the first half of the verse. Well, circumcision and uncircumcision, that's nothing. That is irrelevant. That doesn't matter anymore, right? That's what people will say. Um, what does circumcision mean to Paul, though? We've been discussing this contextually. <clears throat> circumcision means being Jewish. It means being halachically or legally Jewish, right? What is he saying there? It's not about whether or not you're technically Jewish. That is not the big issue here anymore. But what is the issue? What does matter? Keeping the commandments of God, the mitzvot. Could that also include the commandments in the Old Testament? Of course, that's the Bible that he read. Yeah. So that's just, I, I, that is a word that I believe the Messianic, specifically the Messianic Jewish movement, needs to take to heart. Um, there are some organizations out there that are more specifically Jewish, and sometimes it is more about halachic Jewishness. You know, if you have a Jewish mama, then you're Jewish, and then you're on the in and in. But if you don't, you know, I, I've been to Messianic Jewish congregations where before you're even asked what your name is, or anything about you, the question is, are you Jewish? And Paul's attitude here, in my opinion, flies in the face of that. Paul says that's not what it's about. It's about keeping the commandments of God. And that applies to all of us. And that includes the Torah, which is the heritage of every believer. So let's remember that. Our focus in this community is not Jewishness or non-Jewish. Although, you know what? If you are Jewish, that is a blessing. Cherish that. Live that out. Raise your family in that. If you have a Jewish heart, that's good. Good on you. Foster your Jewish heart. But ultimately, it's about your observance of the Torah. That's where the rubber meets the road. I mean, there are, there are congregations I know where it's like, Torah observance is like not encouraged, but Jewishness is really touted as being an important thing. And I just think, man, that's so backwards. I'll, just, I'll share this one last thing with you from Paul's letter. In uh, 1 Corinthians 5.15, he says that you have many teachers but you don't have many fathers. And I became your father through the gospel. I'm sorry, I don't think that is in 5.15. Let's try 4.15. Yeah, that's the, the correct URL for this verse. He says, you have many teachers. If you were to have countless teachers in Messiah, you wouldn't have many fathers. Um, I, I think this is something that we can all aspire to. Like, often in the academic world in the West in general, and also sometimes in the Bible college slash seminary world that is based on the Greek academic model for the most part, you have a lot of teachers, you go hear some lectures, but you don't have that deep relationship with your teacher. Um, you know, often that's simply impossible um, on, on, in terms of time, uh, time and stuff like that. But what I hear, I hear something deeper here. Uh, this is the more Jewish model of discipleship where you engage on a deep level, you build relationship, and then someone learns in that context. So it's not just about writing a paper and getting good grades and learning some stuff and being able to spit information back at the person who originally spit it at you. It's about relationship. It's about growing in that context. It's pictured by how a parent would raise a child. Eh? So just keep that in mind. I, I believe that Abba is going to send people into every one of our lives for us to teach, to, uh, to disciple. And that's not just going to be about giving them information or um, doing classes with them or teaching or whatever. It's going to be about being like a mentor to them, like a father figure, a mother figure. And really, like, the world around us is a fatherless and a motherless world. Really. I mean, even, even like a, a younger generation is a fatherless and a motherless generation. And he wants to reach out to that world through us. So... Maybe that's a practical note that we can, we can end on. Uh, take that home. Pray about that. Is there anyone in your life that he wants you to begin reaching out to on that level um, and, and, and mentoring in that way? Yeah, I pray that we can be a community where that happens, where he can send people like that to us. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. 
and we would appreciate it if you would in turn support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website crownofmessiah.com and going to the donate page where you can make a one-time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.